When I first met illustrator, author, and teacher Lisa Congdon, she was working out of a studio in San Francisco. We became fast friends shortly after we taped our first conversation, and I fell in love not just with her work, but with her big heart, her thoughtful lens on work and life, love and play, and the quest to make things and be creative. I also really love that Lisa didn't come to art until she was almost 40 years old, and over the last dozen years or so, she has shown so many people with her generosity how it's never too late to step into your creative side, whether or not it ever becomes your career. And of course, for her, it has. Now, with this really thriving career, a long list of commissions from everyone from private collectors to giant companies, public shows, she is astonishingly prolific, sharing a huge volume of work on social media, creating and selling online in her retail store and workshop in Portland, Oregon, and collaborating to create everything from textiles to all sorts of merchandise. And, and along the way, she's written and illustrated a bunch of books, taught and spoken all over the world. And now, before taking a sabbatical in 2020, she has released one more offering into the world, a great new book called Find Your Artistic Voice, which is all about discovering and sharing that deepest, most unique part of yourself, both as an artist and a human being. We dive into and explore all of this in today's conversation, along with things like how saying yes isn't always the best option, the role of seeming non-creative practices in living your best creative life and life beyond that, and why working less can sometimes actually be a path to more and better work and living, and so much more. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. This book tour was sort of an experiment for me because yeah. I've never traveled for this long and sort of simultaneously had to keep marching forward, but also maintain all the aspects of my business and life at the same time. And I'm happy to report that it went great. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. The look on your face is one of like surprise. <laughs> well, uh, I think I, the whole time I kept thinking like some, I don't, I don't know that I, that I expected there to be a disaster, but I think I expected maybe more delayed flights or more glitches. And believe me, there were a handful of glitches in the tour, you know, equipment failures and things like that. Always. But, and I did, you know, get a really bad cold about a week ago, which I'm now at the tail end of. But other than that, like really it was fine. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So as we sit here, Good Life Project HQ in New York City, you and I go back a while now. We do. I think you interviewed me for the first time in like 2011, 2012, something like that. And back then I was sort of like tracking your movements. We were filming you had a studio, this really cute studio in San Francisco. It seems like a lifetime ago. Since then, it was like San Francisco and then a move to Oakland and now up to Portland. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of journeying. It is, yes. And so much is, so much is the same, but so much has changed. What do you feel then. is the most significant change? The pace of my career. Huh. And also my sort of uh, leaning into and feeling more comfortable in this place of being a somebody who's more well-known or being a thought leader. Like I, that made me very nervous at first. So, you know, there's more of a, you know, I think when, as one's artistic career grows, the hope is right, that opportunities start to abound. And that certainly happened for me, probably most significantly since 2015. So just in the last four years, it's really ramped up. And there was a period in there where it felt very uncomfortable, probably because I was still suffering a little bit from feeling like an outsider or an imposter in some way. And that was something that I really had to confront and move through in order to continue to do what I do. And I am happy to report that I did a lot of work on that and I'm feeling really good about where I am right now. Yeah. 2015, was there, um, was it just a gra- gradual evolution that led to momentum or did something happen? No, there was no one thing that happened. I think it was a gradual evolution. Yeah. Instagram has been this sort of magical place for me. I used to keep a blog and that was where people found me and would read about, you know, I wrote a lot about my journey and my work. And when Instagram sort of became a space for creative people to share what they were making. It kind of replaced my blog in a way. And I started just posting there. And around 2015, I gained a lot of traction there. Um, 
through my work. And then again, the next year, I think after the 2016 election, I became much more vocal about things in the world that I cared about. And there was sort of like fire under my butt to, um, to do that. And so I think the combination of finding my audience, getting into the flow of the kind of work that I wanted to make and owning my journey towards making that work and starting to put it out into the world. And then, you know, all of the things that were happening in the world kind of was like, it was sort of confluence of factors that led to, I think, increased opportunity and engagement from the people who were following my work. Yeah. So it's less inciting incident and more critical mass. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious also, you know, 2015, you're hitting critical mass and 2016, you decide, you know, it's actually important for me as a human being, not just as an artist, but a human being to actually share my values and share my beliefs, uh, social beliefs, political beliefs in your art. When you make that decision, because at that moment also, you're supporting yourself entirely with your art. You know, so the decision, part of that is an economic decision. It's not necessarily the leading thing, but part of it is, has got to be on some level, will stepping into what I feel is sort of like ethically the place I need to be affect my ability to support myself in the world? Yes. And that question was a big one for me. It didn't take me very long to answer yeah. it, but I, I certainly remember in the very beginning of, of, you know, right after the election and in the very beginning of uh, the, you know, presidential administration, I had this sort of moment where I was like, okay, I work with this client and this client and this client on a regular basis. I have, you know, I work with this online platform and this online platform, and these are all partners that I've had in my journey so far. I wonder if when I speak out about social justice and other, you know, related issues that I care about, are they going to be angry with me? Are they not going to like that? And so for a moment, I thought about that and I thought, well, we'll see. <laughs> because ultimately in the end, it felt more important to me to speak out about the stuff that I care about and that felt important to me. And of course I wanted, you know, I have a, a, a brand that is, you know, for lack of a better word, that is about, um, about talking about what I'm for, not necessarily what I'm against. I'll, you know, that, of course that comes out, you know, like implicitly, but I knew I could do this in a way that was playful and had a certain sense of humor and also was encouraging people to support the, you know, the rights of vulnerable people and who, you know, who doesn't want to do that, right? As opposed to, you know, F you, this, that, and the other thing. And so I took a very particular approach to talking about my values, but I definitely didn't hold back. And, and for sure, what's interesting is that none of my clients, none of my professional corporate collaborators ever balked or, and I, I'm, I actually know people for whom that did happen. So I feel very lucky. I did have followers, however, who wrote me long and continue to write me long emails about why they don't necessarily disagree with me. They find it 
unflattering that I am so outspoken. And so I've really had to, to um, express to people that, you know, I'm not here to make you comfortable. I'm here to be Lisa, right? Like, like you said, like I, I'm a whole human being. And while you like, might like my beautiful illustrations, I'm also about something, you know, as most human beings are, and I'm here to be my full self. And so I decided that was more important than, than trying to please people or keep people comfortable or lose followers. Yeah. It's so interesting because you know, when you think about what is the quote purpose of art and, and there's no universal purpose of art, like what is the purpose of art for you and for those who would enjoy your art, you know? There, even there, there's no one answer and it evolves you know, constantly over time. And you're sort of like regularly, I feel like dipping your toe in the water. Like, how does this feel? How does this feel? How does this feel? And sometimes it feels really good. And then sometimes, you know, whether you get blowback or not, sometimes there's something inside of you, which is like, oh, like that was apparently okay for other people, but there's something in me, which is something doesn't feel right. Like it was internally, there's something that's saying maybe that wasn't right action in some way. It wasn't aligned with who I am and what I believe. Yeah. I think that we're always sort of making choices about, um, I'm finding myself in this very interesting place because I have a platform. So I, I have an artistic voice for sure, but I, um, and that voice encompasses more than sort of visual aesthetics. It, it you know, I'm about certain things and my work is particularly in the last few years become more about certain things. And so, but aside from that, I also have a large platform. And so I certainly feel like I have a responsibility to use that platform in a certain way. And I'm not always perfect at it. And I don't always say things in exactly the right way or, you know, use the most politically correct language. And like, I, I, I try really hard, but I think I'd rather take the chance at, at using my voice in a way that makes a difference and screw up at it occasionally than be too afraid to speak out because I'm so afraid what other people are going to think. Cause sometimes I get blowback that is like that, you know, as Brene Brown says, you know, it's like when people criticize you, you have to, the first filter needs to be like, is that person in the arena? In other right. words, are they doing the work too? And in, in a couple of instances, I've had situations where, you know, somebody said, well, that's not really the right term to use for that group of people, or you might consider including this group of people in your list of marginalized peoples, or, you know, there's always some feedback that I'm getting. And most of the time when I listen to it, it's from people who are also in the arena. They're like also doing the work and that's the kind of feedback I want to listen to. And then the rest of the time I'm, I'm, I'm more listening to my conscience about you know, and, and, and accepting the fact that I'm not always going to do it perfectly. Likewise, I follow a ton of people out there who are doing similar work as me and using their platforms in similar ways and also witnessing them, you know, taking a lot of risks in that way and putting themselves out there and being vulnerable in that way. And it's very inspiring for me to watch. And I feel like I am part of something bigger than myself too. Yeah. It, it really, it's fascinating to see how so many different people, whether you're writers, you know, painters, illustrators, artists, performers, how people are making decisions in this sort of like season of culture. Um, and people are making very different decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. Some people who I know personally to have conversations to say what's behind that. And then some people who I don't know, but I've, I love their work, you know, and, and, um, and you can watch, you're almost trying to extrapolate, like what's the thought process that went into 
these decisions that led to this output, this work in the world. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's such an interesting time to sort of like explore this. I'm a huge fan of Shepard Fairey's work also, and he certainly doesn't hold back. <laughs> no, and, and actually he's a huge role model to all of us because he actually has been doing this kind of work way before the 2016 yeah. election. And he's like, he really has kind of been a, um, you know, he's sort of set the pathway for a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. What also was sort of popping into my head is this this idea of, do we try and create the biggest tent and invite everybody into the tent? And once they're there um, and they're open to us and what we put into the world, slowly put work into the tent that might in, move them, provoke them to explore their point of view um, once they're already sort of like part of the community? Or do we just be very direct and say like, this is my flag in the sand. If you're in, you're in, awesome. There's going to be more of it. And if you're not, you're just not one of us. So don't even bother stepping in or looking at anything else I do. I, I think it's a really interesting dance too. To a certain extent, I'm always thinking, you know, if I can invite the greatest number of people into the conversation, even if they don't see the world the way I see it, maybe if there's enough safety um, and comfort simply in stepping into that tent, then over time, simply being there, um, maybe some shields will drop. Maybe there will be some openness. Or maybe I end up actually learning from them because they stick around for the conversation. That's always a curiosity of mine, sort of like how I choose, even in the context of the podcast, the conversations we have, the guests that we invite. I think that's such an important topic. My approach has always been, you know, I've been accused of sort of creating my own echo chamber. And I think um, anyone who disagrees with you to a certain extent is potentially going to, not just me, but anybody who, you know, is putting their ideas out into the world. But I really very consciously try to, when I am going to, one of the things I love about Instagram is that you can't, it's not just about, there's not the op, just the opportunity to, to post a visual, you can actually write about it too. So you can offer some context. And so I think very carefully, especially when I'm discussing anything delicate. And by, by delicate, I mean anything that could potentially um, move someone either positively or negatively. I'm very conscious about contextualizing, you know, my work um, and, and talking about it, why I made it, why it's important to me, what it means to me personally. And I always try to insert my own personal experience and part of the reason that's important to me is because I know that there are people in my audience who consume my work, who don't necessarily come from the same background or have the same political beliefs or, you know, are, are not feminists, right? And they're following me because they're curious and maybe vi they like my work visually and they've maybe bought one of my books. And my hope is that that, you know, middle class, you know, mom who is sitting in her kitchen in Nebraska, who maybe voted a certain way or has never met a real life gay person or, you know, um, maybe had disparaging beliefs previously about immigrants or, you know, I'm generalizing here, but that that person who follows me and listens to my messages and the way I deliver them might actually 
change her mind about some of those things because I'm doing it in a way that is supportive and, um, you know, hard hitting in my own way, but also like invites people into the conversation. I'm always really careful because I, while I don't get into arguments in my own (laughs) uh, comment feed, other people do, right? And I want to support people and I try really hard to support people in, you know, being part of the conversation. And if somebody asks an honest question, let's not criticize them for that question. Let's, let's um, support them for being brave enough to, to ask the question, you know, amongst a bunch of other people who feel like they already have the answer. And so it is really important to me, as you say, to sort of invite people into the tent to have the conversation. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do, but I'm, that's really ultimately my goal. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We dropped into the deep end of the pool pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really, we've hung out and had conversations over the years so many times. Um, It's interesting. I was remembering also, um, you know, like you have been on the podcast before. The last conversation I think we actually had was in front of an audience um, at KMGLP a couple of years back. And it was a really interesting moment for you too. So this would have been what, 2017 or maybe it was 2016? I think it was 2016. 2016, yeah. right. So you're, you were just coming out of that window where over the last year you had exploded, you know, and you're doing multiple book deals simultaneously, commissions for your art, public, you know, you have a store that's selling your public work online. And you, you and I grabbed two stools, you know, like sat on a stage in front of 400 people. And, and you basically sat there and said, I'm baked. <laughs> like this has been from the outside looking in an astonishing year. And like, I'm sitting here on stage, basically completely empty, trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah, that happened. 2016 was a very important turning point in my career. I... Um, had been working at a pace since about 2011 that, you know, I, I came into this as somebody who worked really hard to get where she is because I mean, everybody who is an entrepreneur works hard, but like, I, I didn't have any particular connections. I'm self-taught. I didn't come out of art school. And so I said yes to every opportunity that came my way uh, very much on purpose. And even as that year started to, um, or the year before started to happen, I didn't stop saying yes, even though I didn't need to continue saying yes to everything. It was like, I was still in this sort of um, scarcity mindset where, or, you know, like, I'm going to screw things up karmically if I say no to, you know, like, if I start say no too many times, like, opportunities will stop coming to me, you know, the universe will punish me or something. But I realized around that time that I needed to um, begin scaling back the amount of projects that I took on because I what what I was doing wasn't sustainable. I was exhausted. I was physically ill. I was like in chronic pain, and um, so what I did was I I sort of wrapped up everything that year um, that I had said, you know, that I had said yes to. And moving forward, I decided I was going to really scale back in 2017. And I, I ended up doing that. And that 2017 was a really remarkable year for me because my career continued to grow. I continued to have opportunity, but I just had fewer projects. And it was this year of like, no, the universe isn't going to punish you for taking care of yourself. Actually, the universe is going to give you fewer, better paying projects. Um, and that when you have more, I don't know, reserves to 
for creativity. You're going to make even better work that resonates even more profoundly with people. And that's exactly what happened. I'm just, you know, that was, that was two years ago. I've had 2019 has been a pretty intense year because I had this book come out and I've been on two different speaking tours, but I also have not continued to overload myself with like a million things. And so even this book tour has been pretty manageable because while I'm working on a bunch of projects, I'm also, you know, like for example, I've been in New York this week and I spent most of my time exploring museums and not sitting at the house where I'm, you know, occupying a guest room working on my computer, which says a lot, right? And, you know, next year I'm taking this sabbatical because um, even coming out of this year, which in no way is been you know, sort of quite as intense as 2016, I still, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I know how much after over a decade of this pace, like I really need to reset in so many ways. There are so many layers to that, but, um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how often, I think, especially in the artistic world, regardless of what domain you inhabit there, how easy it is to drop into sort of like a feast or famine mindset, you know, where I'm, I'm only as good as my last thing. If I slow down or God forbid, vanish for a short window of time, it will be as if I never existed you know, all the talent, all the skill, all the craft, everything I've accumulated will not matter anymore. And, and I've got to, you know, if it shows up, I've got to say yes and just keep going as hard as I can because it might all go away tomorrow. Um, I see that so much. I think it's, I think it's so prevalent as is this, a sense of hustle around promoting your work. Mm. I've seen myself getting caught up in that too. Like it's it's saying yes to opportunities, but also like posting on Instagram, doing personal projects, like amidst all of the paid work and and sort of filling in every available moment of time with this quest to keep this thing alive, you know, which we're so worried is going to die if we ignore it or you know, focus on something else for a period of time. And what I'm learning is that, that actually, at least <laughs> the point in my career that I'm in, that's not going to happen. And I've fortunately watched a few people take breaks and take sabbaticals and, and move away from their work and focus on different things. And, and I've watched their creative process transform in really remarkable ways that are sort of more important than, you know, keeping up with whatever, you know, professional stuff you feel like you need to keep up with. And I'm, I'm really excited to embark on this like really scary, but very exciting time for me. Yeah. I know you to be a pretty detailed and goal oriented person. Um, you sort of say like, this is what I'm going to commit to, you know, like from the earliest days when you're like, I'm going to put work online every day for 12 months when you move and, and you have hit all these benchmarks, I'm going to open an Etsy store. I'm going to write these books. Um, you're really good at saying, this is my benchmark and just working to, to hit it. When you enter a window, like you're about to enter now, when, you, when you're like 2020 is my sabbatical year, do you actually set a goal for that? Or is it more like, this is, this is a year where I'm going to create space and see what happens or somewhere in the middle? I think it's both. I am... 
I do have a solo show that opens in June. And so, which is all personal work, which is all basically whatever. So I have this goal of like the first six months of my sabbatical are going to be primarily focused on just making work. And I have ideas for what that looks like. And of course, my goal is to get it all finished by June. But implicit in that is also some level of exploration and allowing myself to go down rabbit holes and having the time to do that. And I just bought a kiln, you'll be happy to know, earlier this year. And I'm the, sort of, the son of a potter. Yes, like, I know. I knew you would appreciate it. Yeah. it. When your wife, Stephanie, came into my store earlier, we chatted about it. Um, so yeah, I've like been imagining all of the things that I might make and that are different than anything I've made before. And that really requires amount of, you know, a certain amount of spaciousness and and openness because believe me, like I don't, I don't entertain any ideas that, that I could just start making ceramics and then they're going to be ready to show in a gallery. So this is something that's going to require a lot of trial and error. So there's sort of built in time for that. I have ideas about going back to some mediums that I haven't touched in years. So, so I have goals, but I also have a certain amount of um, spaciousness sort of purposely built in. I also, I have some other kind of personal goals, like I'm really into road cycling and I have this idea that I want to ride my bike 3000 miles cumulatively next year, which Mm. not all at once, obviously just track my miles and potentially um, raise money through that process um, for some causes that I care about. So also using some of my quote downtime to be outdoors, doing something else that I love that uses a different part of my brain and my body um, to also kind of, it's like, I made this Venn diagram for next year, which is basically like, you know, artistic exploration, being on my bike, and also being a person who continues to show up for stuff that I care about in the world. And like, I've been thinking about how I can merge those three things. And um, to that extent, I have some goals, but I, I still also feel like it's important for me not to set too many expectations for myself because I don't want this to turn into a new job that's just more self-directed. I want to wake up and have some openness to take my days in different directions. Yeah. So it's like a blend of space and also ritual and practice. Yeah. And it's a little bit of structure, of course. I operate really well under structure. And I'm sure once I start conceptualizing this show and working towards it, I'm going to, you know, you know, have more and more things that I know I want to complete in a certain amount of time. But but I really also feel like I need, because I haven't had in years, this sort of unlimited amount of time and spaciousness to just create stuff. Yeah. yeah. Your body just changed when you were saying yeah, that. <laughs> I just, I'm like, you know, I, I have three different big trips planned to three different foreign countries, none for more than like 10 days. So I'm not going to be gone very much. And I have a few speaking engagements planned. So I'll have to work on a couple of talks, but Really, other than that, I don't have a whole lot of on the calendar. And my goal, actually, my goal is to keep it that way mm. versus filling it up. Because, you know, a lot of times when you have spaciousness, even if it's purposeful spaciousness, like a sabbatical, you say, oh, well, sure, I'll do that. Or I can fit that thing in. And then it all becomes a job again. And I have, that's, you know, I've been working at this job for so long and I, I I need to, I feel like I need to shake things up a little bit because I'm not even sure at this point what I, if I want to continue doing the level of client work that I've done or 
you know, if I want to continue making a book a year for the rest of my life, like I have been, you know, I really just want to see how does this feel and what other things am I interested in and what other things emerge? And who knows at the end of this year where, where I'll sort of decide to go next. Yeah. I feel like it's so hard to make those decisions when your head's down all day, every day doing the work because you need the perspective of stepping out of it in order to actually breathe for a minute and rationally look back down in and really take a look and say like, like use the meta lens, like how's this working for me? When you're in it, it's almost impossible to have that perspective to make those decisions. Yeah, 100%. And I, I, I think that's one thing I've, I, I absolutely, I say this with the most genuine sense of gratitude. I love what I do. I have, I'm exhausted. I have been on a book tour for 74 days. I mean, back and forth to home periodically, but I absolutely love every bit of what I do. And I am so grateful for every opportunity that I have. But I also know I haven't really had time in the last couple of years to think about what else I could do that might bring me joy or about sort of the rest that's required um, and how many books I want to read and movies I want to see, like the things that I don't have time to do. And, um, you know, weekend trips I can take with my friends and my wife. You know, I, these are things that I've had to sacrifice and I want to create more space to sort of dive back into those parts of my life. And then, you know, moving forward, I feel like I'm at this place in my life. Like I'm, I turned 52 in January and I, I still have certainly many more years ahead of me. I'm, I'm healthy and I have energy and, but you know, I am turning into this part of my life where I don't actually want to be working as much. I actually want to be relaxing more and enjoying myself. And I feel like it's important to stop and see what that feels like and get used to it. It's learned, you know, like back in 2016, when I first took a break from working for a period of nine months, I mean, I worked a little bit, but I didn't work as much as I normally did. The hardest part for me was learning how to like read a book again and how to relax again and how to, um, how to, how to not feel anxious all of the time. And I got a handle on that but it took a lot of work. And I have no doubt that, you know, on January 1st, when my sabbatical starts, I'm going to have to relearn a little bit of that again as well. Right. It's like, oh yeah. Um, let me figure this out. I, I mean, as you step into that, you also brought up, you know, you become an avid cyclist. Um, swimming was your jam for a long time before that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know also another thing that's become part of your life is meditation. Yeah. Um, I had sort of like two levels of curiosity. Maybe we can play with both of them a little bit. One was, one was what those what those practices mean to you just as a human being. Um, and the other was maybe a bit more nuanced, which is, do you have a sense that those, quote, non-creative daily practices actually are important in your life as a creative human being? Yes. To answer that last question, absolutely. I joined this women's cycling team about two years ago in Portland. And so I have been writing in the last two years more regularly and consistently than I've ever written in my entire life amidst actually a very, you know, busy sort of thriving time in my career. But it is the antidote to whatever stress um, I experience 
and you know that is part of this career that I'm also very grateful for. It it also comes with you know some sleeplessness and anxiety um, because I'm busy and I'm trying to meet deadlines and writing with my team. Um, and you know I'm a distance cyclist, so I'm going anywhere from 25 to 60 miles at a you know a given time, mostly on Saturdays, sometimes during the week, and it is this. Um, this, it is, it's it, in some ways it's its own form of meditation, right? Because um, when you are on a bicycle, it's actually kind of a dangerous sport, even if you're on flat land or not around a lot of other cars, because you have to pay attention at every moment to the present moment. You Occasionally you get lost in thought, but for the most part, you could crash if you take your eyes off of the road and you're not paying attention. And, and there is this way that you, when you're riding your bike you're and you're clipped in, you have to really pay attention to the here and now. And, you know, I sort of simultaneously will have conversations about life with my teammates as we're writing. And it gets me out of the work head and the art head. And a lot of people on my team, they know I'm a well-known artist, but they don't really care. They're just, I'm just Lisa to them, right? right? And that is so wonderful. And it's also my wife rides on the team as well. So it's this way that we can sort of be together in our community. And that's been really wonderful. I am, my meditation practice has been inconsistent in the last six months because I've been traveling so much. But what that does for me similarly is sort of like grounds me. Um, you know, when I, I I get up in the morning and for me, part of meditation is not just sitting quietly in my, you know, in focusing on my breath, but also, you know, reading things that are helpful and inspiring to me. Um, you know, I find a lot of like, I read a lot of like poetry, spiritual poetry and do some writing and even some drawing. And I have a, you know, kind of set up in this room that's off of my bedroom that is extremely peaceful to me. And that practice when I can do it regularly is so sets the tone for my day and is so grounding to me and has been enormously life-changing. And in fact, one of the things that I look forward to most about next year is actually because I won't be traveling so much that I can actually get into this practice and have time for it and not rush out of it because I have a nine o'clock client call or whatever. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. it's. Um, I mean, I think movement as a, as a form of meditation and state of meditation and work in this really interesting complementary way. But in a past life, I was I spent a lot of years road cycling also, which you may not know about me. Actually. I didn't know um, that. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree. People, I think very often will think of it as, well, you're just out kind of enjoying the day. And it's like, no, especially if you're riding in a group or a pack and you're going at a good clip and oftentimes you're wheel to wheel. That's right. Um, if you lose focus for a heartbeat or like there's a little divot in the road or something like that, or you clip somebody's wheel, I mean, you can not only take yourself down, but like everyone behind you, which doesn't cultivate good, good feelings in the group, speaking from personal experience, yeah. of course. Um, and then I, I eventually sort of like ended up spending a lot more time mountain biking where I would like to ride really fast and single track in the trees. And again, that was for years my form of meditation because the environment and the pace that I chose demanded that you had to be hyper-present the entire time or, or else you would physically injure yourself. Um, and then seated meditation, which which I've been doing for a lot of years now too, just it added something different 
which I never really understood until I, I was brought to that practice, not willfully, but, um, and I, I also have found that it's not just good for me on an individual level, that it opens up, I feel like it's changed my ability to, to not just create the space for new ideas to come to me as a creative human being, as a maker, but also step back from the abyss of anxiety and fear when I'm a little bit freaked out about what I might be entertaining. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that in 2016, when I was going through this, you know, we were on stage together and yeah. I was describing the scent, the level of burnout and, and sort of consternation that I was feeling. I wasn't in a, I hadn't been regularly meditating. And what's interesting is this past year I have, um, you know, I really started this year on a very, with enormous amount of intention and um, an enormous amount of presence with myself and my choices and the level of anxiety that I have had because of my meditation practice and because of my level of sort of presence and intention with my life. Um, the, the pace of things is not affecting me in the same way. And also I scheduled this, <laughs> this long break ahead of myself, which, um, which also feels really important. And, and I, I, I take that as like this, like I, I can very much appreciate like how far I've come just in the last, you know, three years between that last conversation we had. And now, because at the time I was learning so much about like how to manage this new world that I had entered. And I, as a result, I started working with coaches and meditation teachers and reading books and focusing really intentionally on how to have this, allow this opportunity for my career to really thrive happen, but also to have, to take care of myself and my relationships and these other parts of myself. And um, I don't do it perfectly all of the time, but I am in such a better place than I was because of all of that work. And that work will never end because it is sort of like you have to constantly do it and pay attention um, and make shifts and allow things, you know, in order to move forward. So that is a very satisfying thing to me that not only has, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of, not only has my career grown and, but, but I've grown, you know, I'm not just sort of like going in, I'm not caught in this hamster wheel where I can't, I'm not, you know, which is really the analogy I used three or four years ago, where I'm not sort of being present with it. Like I feel like it's happening, but I'm being very present with it. And fortunately I've had a lot of great teachers that have helped me along the way. Yeah. Nah, so agree. I feel like, um, like meditation, movement, all those practices are kind of like the psychological shower. Um, yeah, you move through life and the process of life is you get dirty. Yeah. <laughs> and these are the things that sort of like, you know, and, and if you just stop doing it, then eventually the dirt starts to obscure who you are. You can't even see yourself anymore. And it's sort of like the daily stripping away or weekly or a few times a week, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So as we sit here today, also you're in, in, you know, you've alluded to the fact you've been on tour for a couple of months now with this new book before you, you sort of skedaddle for a year and go deep into your own work, um, which is all about kind of a fascinating topic that I know we've talked about in little slices over a period of years. So I know this is not a new exploration for you. It's the, the whole idea of finding your artistic voice. And, um, and you hit a point where you're like, you know what? there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had. I know you, you, you've written about it in the past, you know, like you, you have, but you turned a page where you're like, there's more to be said. And I know over the years, this is a question that you get asked over and over and over is this idea from young artists and, and probably from not so young artists also, like h- how do I find, because I think that the edict is you've got to find your voice. You're like you're not legit. You can't go out there in the world or you can't even make your own art until you figure out what is that thing that is distinct about you. So you took on this project and said, okay, let me write a book because that's what you do. <laughs> what, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. Um, 
first, maybe a definition is probably a good place to start. So when we talk about this thing called your artistic voice, what are we even talking about? Well, there's so many layers to it, but really it's like sort of, you know, writ large. It's like, it's what sets you apart. It's the, it's the thing that even if you are making work that is, and I wrote this book for visual artists, although the same sort of general principles apply to writers and comedians and actors and anybody who has a creative point of view, but it's the, it's, you know, your voice is that thing that even if you work in a similar genre as other artists or have a very similar style. It's like the thing that makes your work yours. Even, you know, as I said, with even different, you know, makes your work different from other artists, even those artists whose work is similar to yours, right? It's the thing that sets you, makes you, you know, makes you you. And that's important for a few reasons. It's important for folks who have professional aspirations, right? Like it's this thing that feeds, you know, building an audience, and allows you to exchange money for your work, which allows you to continue making more work, which allows you to continue to develop your voice, which allows that you know that sort of continuous continuous professional cycle. It's also, you know, it's your voice is your story. I think we we often equate um, voice with style, right? Like especially for visual artists or musicians, um, that it's this particular way that things look. But really, your style is definitely a very important part of your voice, but your voice is really your own point of view. It's your, it's your own version of the truth. It's your, it's your story, right? And everyone has a story. And a lot of people who don't make narrative work don't necessarily think of their um, voice as their story, but really your story is everything about you. It's, you know, your values and your, your life experience, you know, it's your, it's the color of your skin and your sexual orientation. It's all these things. It's all these ways that you walk through the world and how you filter everything around you. And that all sort of culminates in what you choose to make work about. Like it's your subject matter. And that is, I think that's surprising to people. And I want to encourage people to to focus less on, you know, what what is my style to more like, what am I trying to say? What's my, what a, what am I about? And I think that's often missing for a lot of people. And also owning whatever that is and not comparing it to other people that maybe their message is more important than mine. And because a lot of times the stuff that we make work about might seem really banal um, or simplistic, but it is you're making your that work for a particular reason. And that's important because it's what makes your work yours. It's it's your own particular point of view. It's owning your process and the way you approach your work and the materials you use and the subject matter and the, you know, all of those things. It's interesting when I, before I made, decided to make this book, my real sense of curiosity was like, how did I get from this place where I, you know, had no artistic training and I taught myself a pretty much almost exclusively along the way. I took a few classes here and there, but how did I get from this place of being a total beginner to somebody who has this very well-formed voice? And I realized that there was something there that I could learn from. And then I also interviewed a bunch of other artists who had, you know, everybody goes through their own path, right? How did you find your voice and what, what was important in that process? And I also, you know, dove into some research about creativity and how the brain works and as it turns out, like practicing 
and showing up and doing the same thing over and over and over is one of the, you know, one of the, the main things that leads to, you know, one finding one's voice in whatever medium you use. And the other thing is actually openness to experience, like just being open to, um, and, and being non-judgmental. So going back to our earlier conversation, like this idea of just sort of being present with what is, being curious and and having this sense of wonder about the world actually is is extremely important in developing your voice. And I think I understood all of that on some level before I started, you know, researching and writing the book, but the book sort of like made that all very clear to me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so interesting that, um, you mentioned openness to experience and um, a willingness to sort of like commit to doing this thing over and over and over also, which my brain translates to conscientiousness, which are, which those two are essentially like two of the big five personality traits, which really map how we exist in the world, um, along with, you know, levels of neuroticism and stuff <laughs> like this, which is always an interesting exploration with, with people with a creative bent as well. You also mentioned the word style, which... I feel like that is that has become to a certain extent sort of like the the red herring um, because a lot of people are like, well, I've I've got to develop this distinct external style, this form of expression that is truly mine and only mine, and then and then iterate on that so I have the level of craft to express it in the way that I want to express it. Important part of voice, right? But what I love about what you're saying is that. That's the part that can actually, that anyone's capable of developing. The part that is truly distinct is the, the, the expression of your essential self underneath it. And I think that's where we get tripped up because we're like, oh, I, I, I don't really know who that is. And that's going to take a lot more work. And I'm not entirely sure. Like, you know, like at, where's the class for that? Like, where's the, you know... That I, you know, I can go take a hand lettering class, cool. But where's the, the class which helps me elicit my essential nature and my point of view and my values and beliefs? Right. And I think what trips a lot of people up is, in, you know, is this idea that they're, they don't have anything interesting to say, nah. that they're boring. And I like to say, like, the fact that you think you're boring is actually just part of your story. So, like, dive into that, you know. I worked with a storytelling coach last year. And just as a way to sort of begin to make my public talks a little bit more personal and more interesting. And what was so interesting is I would go meet with her once a week and she just asked me, it was kind of like therapy in a way, except, you know, not, she wasn't trying to psychoanalyze me at all. It was more just like, tell me more about that. Oh, let's dig into that. And, and we began to craft this story about sort of how I got, you know, my, you know, how I became an artist and what that meant to me. And it was so interesting that I, there were aspects to my story that she thought were so interesting that I would never have thought to share. And so I do think that is important work. I don't think everyone needs to hire a storytelling coach, but um, I do think spending time, even if you're a visual artist, really digging into who am I and what am I about and, you know, what are all of these maybe even previously shameful or embarrassing parts of my life that I can use in my work um, to tell my story 
Because that's ultimately what's going to connect people with you and your work is like you being human, right? And sure, there are a lot of artists out there um, who like abstract painters, for example, who it's very unclear, right? Like how their story is coming through in their work, but there's there's still so much there in terms of like how you decide to render anything on the page or how that comes through in your hand is a result of your need to either control things or, or um, your need to express anger or chaos. Like even in abstract work, your story is emerging. And I think we don't think about it that way, but it's really true. And like, I think the more we think, we understand that. And the more we are open to that, the more creative we will, you know, have the ability to be, right? Yeah. And and we can allow the way we express that to evolve as we evolve as individuals underneath that. Um, as reflecting as you're speaking on years back when we were filming, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with Milton Glaser, who's this, you know, iconic designer, just an astonishing human being. And we circled around to the topic of style and he is a fierce, he he hates the idea that you would label somebody with a style or that anybody who is in the creative world would say, this is my style. You know, he put a stamp on it and he said, people tried to do that. He's incredibly successful and people would hire him because they kind of wanted like, they're like, well, we want that style. And he's like, no, you hired me because of the way I think, the way I see the world, because I have my unique process and point of view. And you need to trust that that will come up with something that's really good, that may look like nothing I've ever done before. And, And I remember him sharing how that was not always the most comfortable conversation with clients who wanted it to look like X, which had been done, you know, like a whole bunch of times before. And, um, I think, you know, when we lock ourselves into that, it's almost like, we're reverse engineering. So like style, we lock ourselves into a style, which then makes us afraid of evolving the human being underneath the style. And then everything becomes stale. That's right. I have a friend right now who I've spent some time with in New York this week. She lives here and she's an illustrator and she's sort of bored with, you know, she makes a lot of products and she has a very distinct style and she really wants to break out of it. But, you know, her clients and her, you know, they, they expect things a certain way. And I was really encouraging her. And I think she's ready. You know, she really wants to move her work into a new direction. And I said, you have to trust the process. You have to trust that, you know, because if you are bored making the work that you're making or you're making it for other people, the, you know, you are going to lose interest. It's going to be a miserable experience for you. And I think what's often confusing for people is like, my style is sort of, you know, my voice has always been pretty consistent actually, but my style changes every now and again, depending on the mediums that I'm using. And I am, you know, always, I think for a long time, people were confused by that. Oh, you try so many things, you do so many things, you paint, you draw, you collage, you do this, you do that. And I think people especially people who want to work in the professional realm, feel like they should do something. I mean, consistency is important. It's part of your voice, but that's more the DNA part of you that like comes out in your work. This idea that everything you make has to look the same or be in the same color palette or, or, you know, be in the same style constantly, 
is actually antithetical to creativity, right? Like we want to get to the place where we're really open to trying new things and doing things in a new way and going with these crazy ideas that we have about making new work. And I would encourage people to to really focus on that and and let that guide, you know, your work rather than I must make things in this way because that's what people want to consume. Yeah, I I remember going to a show at the Guggenheim was it earlier this year or last year, Hilmoff Clint. Oh, amazing show. Mine, like my, my brain melted yeah. out of my yeah. head. But, you know, we actually started at the top of the show. And for those who haven't been to the Guggenheim, it's this giant ice cream cone type of thing where there's one walkway that spirals from the top to the bottom or the bottom to the top. And all these really abstract, fascinating, amazing, moving things. And then we got down towards the bottom of the spiral. And they had one piece of work from her from her previous career. And it was this stunning semi-realistic impressionist landscape painting. And like to think that it was the same artist, it was almost inconceivable. You know, it beautiful craft. I mean, the level of skill was absolutely, I mean, it was breathtaking in its own way. And then to walk 30 feet up the ramp, actually, and, and then like into, there was a one gallery with these massive, massive paintings. It was, and it was such a great reminder to me of what's possible when you open yourself up to not locking, like not locking down the way that you express this thing and letting it evolve. I think in most artists' retrospective shows, you will see some example of that, right? Like these early works or the the progression of work over years. There's also another great example, uh, not necessarily of progression, but of allowing is um, Gerhard Richter. So he... He's this magnificent painter, living, still living, um, and he paints both hyper-realistically, like, like almost fo- giant, almost photorealistic paintings, and completely abstractly with like a squeegee. There's a great documentary about him called Gerhard Richter Painting, and and I love that he sort of allows both of these things to be part of his repertoire, and they're not in conflict. They just are two different parts of his brain that work differently and ways that he needs to express himself creatively. And, you know, from time to time he focuses on, in his career, he's focused on different aspects. But I just, I love that. He's such a shining example to me of someone who allows there to not be this hole that they have to sort of fit everything into. And one of the questions I get asked most often when I do Q&As in front of audiences is, I, I want to do so many different things and I, I feel like I should have one style. And is it confusing to me if I have a website that has two different sections for the, you know, people are so hung up about um, fitting into some sort of brand or some sort of like way of sharing their work that's not confusing to people. And unfortunately, as creative people, we're like, you know, I mean, that's part of like what makes us who we are is the like, fact that I, we can't, be we can't reel it in, right? We have, we want to do it all. We want to make this, we want to make that. And I just say to people, like, if it's not, you know, like, of course you got to manage it a little bit so it doesn't stress you out, but like, go do the things, like go be that person who makes all the things and explores all of the things. You know, of course you want to find the things that you love the most that also resonate the most with your audience so you can make a living. But 
I'm not a fan of getting too hung up about like, you know, branding yourself as this one thing just so you can make a living. I think it's, it, it ultimately will, will make you feel, you know, sort of miserable and stifled in a way. Yeah. So. I think there's some interesting workarounds also. Um, you know, I know authors who write under pen names where they'll write historical fiction under this and then they'll write you know, like something completely different, largely because they feel like they need to, for them to be okay as a, as a, a maker, a creator, and somebody who needs to be expressed and to pursue their interests, they need to do this work. They are concerned because they're professionals and their their living depends on it, that they'll alienate their existing audience. So rather than testing that water under the same name, they'll create a separate identity. And for years, nobody would know. You know they're successful in both domains. They have followers, but, but um, and, and they don't cross over all that much. I mean, but it brings up a really interesting question, which is when you think about doing the work to develop your artistic voice and the desire, and this isn't true for everybody, but if you also desire to have then your artistic expression be the source of your living, do you feel that there's a tension in developing those simultaneously? Do you like alternate between them? Because if you're trying to, to if you're trying to develop what feels really true to you at the same time that you're trying to develop work that you think will pay your rent, um, is that okay? Yes. I always sort of, I, I feel like I need to, I'm really into Venn diagrams. I may have mentioned one a few <laughs> minutes ago, but there's another one, which is for me personally, like for me, the it's this intersection between doing what I love and what I want to do but also sort of like finding that that space where other people at that overlap, you know, with what other people are appreciating and enjoying. And maybe even a third circle that is something about, I don't know, honoring my own point of view and my own experience and my own um, approach to things that there's a, some kind of sweet spot in the middle there. Um, and I think every, I encourage everyone to like figure out where they're, you know, your, your Venn diagram might, like, might look different, but for the purposes of having a professional career, I think you have to find the overlap between what brings you joy, what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and what brings other people joy and what makes other people want to consume your work or identify with your story or say that is so beautiful. I love that. I'm going to go buy it from your shop or whatever. That doesn't mean that that's all you do. Maybe there's some stuff you're doing on the side that's a little weird or different or that isn't necessarily even commercially, you know, available and that you're not necessarily restraining yourself, but finding the intersection between what brings you joy and what brings your audience joy feels to me like the place that we we have to find as professional creatives. And if you're lucky or you're smart about how you work at that, you'll find it. I actually find the most satisfaction in that work because there's something about making something, being in the flow of making it, or even if I've not been in the flow, even if it it was, you know, something that I created out of struggle and <laughs> consternation, which sometimes also happens. But in the end, I'm like, I'm so down with this thing. It's so good. And then putting it out into the world and having other people respond to it is like, 
And that doesn't always happen either. But when it does, it is like the most intense feeling of kind of connection and I don't know, resonance that I can describe. It's to me, one of the best parts of being an artist is not just the act of creating, which is also really amazing and wonderful personally and internally, but also like how, you know, when I share that stuff and other people respond to it, it's like, it's magical. And that's part of what motivates me to keep making work. And I think that's the thing everybody needs to find. And it's going to look different for everybody. But I do think that those things are compatible. And ultimately, when you're doing what you love and you are doing it out of, from a place of curiosity and openness and joy, it's going to resonate with people. It just happens. Mm-hmm. So Love that. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle. I'm going to ask you a question I have asked you before, but it's been a lot of years. Okay. So as we sit here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Wow. I think it's all the things we've been talking about for the last hour. For me personally, I have really spent a lot of time in the last couple of years trying to move from this place of feeling like I I didn't belong or that I, I was kind of came into this world of art and design as an outsider and really just sort of owning my own experience. I'm in honoring my own experience as an older woman, as a, somebody who's self-taught, as some, as actually like my strength and not the thing I need to be ashamed of. So for me, part of living a good life is really owning and honoring whatever your path is. We spend so much time in shame spirals or in not feeling like we're enough, or in not feeling like we'll ever be good enough. And the minute I started changing my own narrative about my life and my potential and um, my connect, you know, like what was actually connecting me to the people who were consuming my work, I started to relax and feel more joy and some people might describe it as confidence, but just this sense of equanimity about like my life. And and I feel like my life is so much better because of that sort of shift that I made. So I would say right now, what makes a good life for me is, is you know, is just sort of being me and owning my own experience as valuable and important and you know, being okay, taking up space, you know, with that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E type.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.